Morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Andrew started off with, I uh, said this in the first service, um, with the uh, plug for daylight savings time, because this morning I had the realization at 7.30 that I thought it was today. And so there was about a 10-minute a period where I saw every room of my house in about 30 seconds. Um, but thankfully, uh, that's next Sunday, so I was here on time. So, um, like we said, I we're going to continue with our year of discipleship uh, this morning with a focus uh, on numbers, in particular chapters 13 and 14. And what we're going to do, we're going to talk about fear and panic. And not only that, but the fear and panic created by false evidence, which according to our world today probably seems a bit familiar. Um, fear in this case for this morning is used as an acronym with as false evidence appearing real. And I think that's oftentimes the case. Fear derived from false evidence. And fear that grows and causes panic and causes inaction. And as we've seen, we see it in the scriptures and, we, and we've seen it to, today, fear can become contagious. And that's why it's remarkable when you see a person or a group that doesn't fall victim to fear, that doesn't let present circumstances dictate their reaction, but rather puts their faith in our Creator and in His promises. And while I was studying for this sermon, I couldn't help but remember a particular group and actually a particular person. And many of you probably know the story of the Doolittle Raiders. Um, they were a group of B-25 pilots during World War II that on April 18, 1945, completed one of the most daring raids in aviation history, if not the most daring. It was a one-way mission. All 16 crews knew that when they left the aircraft carrier, in this case the USS Hornet, that they would not be returning to it. Uh, they were placing all their hopes in reaching mainland China after delivering their payload in Japan. And it was just as much a psychological mission as it was a strategic mission. It was to prove to Japan that their mainland was vulnerable to attack. And the mission was successful. Though all but one plane was destroyed and eight of the pilots were captured. And of the eight pilots that were captured, three were executed by the Japanese. And one of the pilots that was executed was Lieutenant Bill Farrow, and he's actually a local, a local fella. He grew up down the road in Darlington and was a graduate of St. John's High School and the University of South Carolina. And my mom was a graduate of St. John's High School and the University of South Carolina, so I've grown up hearing this story. But what amazed me and what, what still amazes me to this day is how Lieutenant Farrow behaved knowing he was about to be executed. He wrote several letters home that eventually made their way back prior to his death. And if you read his letters, there's not a lot of fear that comes out in these writings. He actually seems more concerned about how others will, are going to suffer with his absence than his own fate. And I read this article recently and it, about him, and it says, One day prior to his known date of execution, young Lieutenant Farrow unseduced, unshaken, unmoved, and unnerved, just sitting in his cell writing his last letter to his mother. He wasn't thinking of himself or the cruel death that awaited him and the two other Doolittle Flyers condemned with him. 
He was thinking of his mother and the girl he would never marry. How he could comfort them, accepting to remind them of the faith that was his own great comfort in this hour of trial. The time was getting short, and he reread what he had written to his mother, and anxious to spare as much grief as possible, added these closing words that are now immortal. Don't let this get you down. Just remember God will make everything right, and that I will see you all again in the hereafter. Read Thanatopsis by Bryant if you want to know how I'm taking this. My faith in God is complete, so I am unafraid. And in getting into the scripture today about fear, I can't think of a better example of someone putting their faith in the promises of God rather than of present circumstances. So we're going we're gonna to move into the text, and again, we're going to be in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 for most of our, our time here. I, I will say this will be the last time I preach without glasses on this podium. It's, it's getting worse. Um, I spoke to a stack of microwaves at Lowe's last Saturday, and uh, Brittany told me that's pretty much the, uh, the final straw. So uh, last time without them. Uh, Praise God. All right. The book of Numbers uh, gets its name actually from the list of censuses that are inside of it. Um, It's it's interesting. The Greek name for the book is Arithmoi and the Latin is Numeri, both mean numbers. However, the Hebrew name for the book is Bimidbar, which means into the wilderness. So if you just look at the you know the three different you know biblical languages, you can figure out actually what's going to happen. Numbers and, and wilderness. But you know, the book was written by Moses. And it occurs in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan in 1500 B.C. in the second year after the Israelites left Egypt. It's a mixture of law and narrative. And because of this, some find it difficult to interpret. And this is is a good spot where you see a lot of year Bible reading plans end uh, between this and Leviticus. But what this book does for us, it fills the time period after the exodus and before the entrance into the promised land, as the Israelites were preparing to enter it. And it makes us also aware of why there was a delay, a 40-year delay. And even though there was a 40-year delay, it shows us that our God is still faithful, even in the midst of disobedience. So again, in this book, we have two censuses. We have some Levitical laws and rituals. We have an itinerary, poetry, and prophecy. And this is interesting. Um, you know, until 1979, the oldest Old Testament fragments we had were the Dead Sea Scrolls, some 2,000 uh, years uh, before Christ. Um, but in 1979, um, in the Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem, archaeologists found two tiny silver scrolls, very small, that were likely worn around, around the neck. They were so small and delicate that it took three years to unroll. And when they finally did unroll them, the first word that they came to was Yahweh. And what they found out was what it was, was number six, 24 through 26, which is the Aaronic blessing, which many of you know, which is the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Further, when they dated these scrolls, they were back to the late 7th century B.C., so making them the earliest known 
uh, Bible verses or fragments that we have, you know, four centuries older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you know me, I'm fascinated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I will plug them every chance I get. But um, I thought, you know, going to preach in numbers today, that's a, a really interesting fact. But again, we're going to be in 13 and 14 this morning. And what we're going to look at first is the report of the spies that were sent into the promised land. Twelve spies were sent in um, to look at the land that the Israelites were, were going to be taking. And so in chapter 13, verses 23 through 29, this is what we read. And they came to the valley of Eskel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amicalites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. So what we have is we have an account of 12 spies What's often looked at is the terrified ten versus the trusting two. Fear of man over fear of God. Because if you look at the spies' report, what God promised was there. What God promised Abraham centuries before was there. And here God entertains this plan to verify what was there. You know, he gave the people the free will to do so. And when I, when I read this, it reminds me of you know, being a parent when you tell your kids, hey, go look under the tree and see if there's a present there. You know, the outcome is not in question. But again, our Lord lets them go and verify. And even though what was there was exactly as God said it would be, 10 found reasons to be afraid. 10 found reasons to doubt. And they were blinded by their fear. And if we look at it, fear can do that. It grows, and as more people pile on to fear, consequences increase. R remember the gas shortage. Better yet, remember the toilet paper shortage. You know, and I don't say that to make light out of both situations, but rather to prove that as a people, we really haven't changed very much. You know, the faith of the people of Israel is not in the promises of God, because their focus was on their present situation. And also what I don't want to do this morning is make light of the report of the ten spies, because what they said wasn't untrue. You know, there were large men there. There were giants occupying the land that they examined, and the cities were fortified. They had high walls. I read some up to 25 feet in height, and there was a ton of people there. All of that was true. But... God had told them that now was their time. And God had proven to them time and time again, no less than 10 times, that he could be trusted. And he had commanded them to take it. 
But the people feared, and they feared the description of ten over the account of two. For us, we're called to be bold in our belief. Not reckless, but bold. We don't grumble about the state of the world or about the state of our government. We can certainly be concerned and disappointed in it, but our hope cannot be in this world. Our, our sights and our hearts can't ever be on this world if we want the peace that the life in Christ provides. You know, today, what is going on in Ukraine is absolutely awful. And I'm heartbroken for their people, and I grieve for them, and my soul hurts when I see the images coming back from there. And I feel the very same about this war as I did for the wars that I've been in and the lives that I've seen ended violently and the families broken. And it's right to grieve and it's good to grieve and it's right to be angry, righteously angry at the situation. It's okay to be righteously angry at a world leader whose actions are abhorrent and cowardly and evil. But church, we cannot lose hope that even in the midst of what appears to be a hopeless situation in a hopeless world. We can't walk with Christ during our time on earth constantly grumbling as the Israelites did. God created us for right now for this very moment and he wanted us here now. And we have to remember this and we have to focus on this because this is where the peace is. And trust me, it will all be made right, as Andrew mentioned earlier. And I was thinking about this this morning, and I just want to jump real quick to Revelation. And just as a good reminder for all of us, what the Lord will be doing on his return. And it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has this under control. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, never pin your whole faith on any human being. Not if he's the best and wisest in the whole world. There's lots of nice things you can do with sand, but do not try building a house on it. So let's not build houses on our present situation. So as we move into chapter 14, what we're going to see in the first four verses is the reaction of the people after hearing the report of the spies. We're going to see the revolt of the people. So let's read one through four. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? 
our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And for the sake of the context, I want to move into the next five verses as well, verses 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephana, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Because fear leads to doubt and unbelief, and it will keep you, as we see here, from the blessings of God. It will keep you from the promises of God, and it will keep you from the full life that we have in God. And you look at their reactions. It would be better for us to die in Egypt, they say. It would be better for us to die in the wilderness. They're questioning. They're doubting the goodness of God. And further, they ask, why did the Lord bring us here only to die? And this is a people that has firsthand seen the goodness of God. Time and time again, they had the Lord with them for their journey providing for them during their journey, fulfilling promises for them during their journey, and how quickly they forgot. And how quickly do we forget? And really, look at what they're doing. They are so utterly blinded by their fear that they want to go back to Egypt. They want to elect a leader and go back to Egypt. You know, Think of it this way. Your people is associated with the destruction of half the Egyptian army and the death of all the firstborns. And you're so blinded with fear, you actually believe Pharaoh will be welcoming you back with open arms. And Chuck Smith describes it this way. He said, here is the tragic failure of the people. God had brought them right to the borders of entering into the full blessing the abundant, rich life. It was there. All they had to do was go in and possess it. God had already promised, I will drive out the inhabitants from before you. I'll send hornets and all before you and drive out the inhabitants. You just go in and take the land. And God had brought them right to the border, right to entering in of this land of blessing and promise and fullness. And the people at this point failed to enter because they allowed fear to dominate their hearts instead of faith. And whenever you allow fear to dominate your life instead of faith, the fear brings unbelief, and that unbelief will rob you and keep you from that which God has already made available for you, and it's just laying there waiting for you to pick it up. The fact that this account of the Israelite response surprises us now today is actually a testimony, I think, to the human heart. Because in actuality, this this response should not surprise anyone. Our human hearts can be described as fickle, as ever-changing, as evil, and had we been in the same position as the Israelites, I believe the outcome would not change a bit. 
And we may like to think it would have, but it wouldn't because we want to rebel. We want to break the law and we want by nature to do what we want to do. We're no different than them. But what this section does, it shows us clearly the contrast between God's faithfulness and human disobedience. We serve a perfect God. We serve one that's perfect in love, but he's also perfectly just. And because he's perfectly just, sin cannot go unpunished. Because if it went unpunished, it would go against his very nature. And it cannot happen. And unfortunately for the Israelites, as we'll read in verses 26 through 34, they were punished for their actions. Here the Lord speaks to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, You shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. Chuck Smith makes these comments again on this section. He said, now they said, hey, it it was God that brought us here, you know, to kill our little ones and and our carcasses, lie, lie here in the wilderness. And God said, all right, you said it. Your carcasses will lie in the wilderness, but your children that you said, God brought them here to be a prey and all. They will be the ones that go in and possess the land. Only Joshua and Caleb of the people will be able to go in because they brought back an encouraging report. In this case, the cost of unbelief was high. It cost the people their inheritance. But it wasn't a lack of anything else. It wasn't a lack of works. It wasn't a lack of being worthy. It was simply a lack of faith. And this was an awful time for them. At this point, the Israelites have disobeyed over 10 times, and the Lord, who we said is just by his very nature, punishes them. But, But note this, his promise is still valid. He promised them the land And they'll get it, just not now. And even though he punishes them, he doesn't leave them. And even though he punishes them, he continues to sustain them. And even though he punishes them, he continues to lead them and love them and forgive them and fulfill his promises to them because he's a loving God and because he's a good God. He listened to Moses. He pardoned the people. I love verse 21 where he says, but as surely as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
You see, he never leaves them. He's always present. As we said, as a people, the Israelites are not much different than us. They saw God clearly ten times answer their prayers, yet they still let fear rule their hearts, and they still had to learn the lesson the hard way. But we don't have to follow suit. We can learn from them. We can learn and know that our God fulfills his promises so that when we're faced with a trial and we're terrified, we can walk boldly forward knowing his will will be done. And as we end this morning, I think it's important to bring this all back to Jesus because this entire book, our entire Bible is about him. And I know that we know this and we've heard it said before, but I think it's worth repeating because I think a lot of times we can get wrapped up in the New Testament because that's where we see Jesus's ministry. But from the first good news in Genesis 3:15 forward, this entire Bible is about him. It points to him and it all goes back to him. You know, I, I'm fortunate enough to have my great-great-grandmother's Bible. And it's over 120 years old, and it is full of notes, page to page. Every margin, every cover is, is filled with it. And on the inside cover, she had this quote. It says, in the old, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. And I thought that was very applicable to what we're looking at today. And also we see, we see similarities between the life of Moses and the earthly life of Jesus. We have, a, we have two prophets, a, a prophet and a capital P prophet. And that's why I like Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Um, it says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command them. And this is where, I like many different translations of the Bible, but this is where I think the King James Version, those translators hit the nail on the head when they capitalize P here because they're talking about the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus. You also look at Jesus and Moses, and both of them were envied by the people they served. They were both despised by the people they served, yet both interceded on behalf of those that despised them. You see, the prophecy of the coming of Jesus is all throughout this Bible. It's not just found in the New Testament. It's not just found in the major prophets and the minor prophets. This is all about him, and it all points back to him. If you don't know him, and if you don't know what knowing him means, or if you don't know what a personal relationship with him is, that's okay. Please get with a pastor or a deacon and ask questions. Pastor Andrew is here off to your right after, after each service. And we're, we're all here at Friendship. We are all here for each other. We are all on a level playing field. I've heard it said we are all beggars just showing other beggars where to find some bread. That is who we are. At the beginning of uh, this morning, I spoke about the Doolittle Raiders and of Lieutenant Bill Farrow. And um, if you remember in his final letter... Uh, to his mother before his execution, he stated, read Thanatopsis by Bryant if you want to know how I'm taking this. And what he was referring to, he was referring to the American poet William Cullen Bryant. 
And the title of the, of the poem he's referring to, Thanatopsis, translates a consideration of death. And I can't think a better way to sum up how God wants us to walk in this world and how, it, how he wants us to leave this world boldly, knowing what and who waits for us, absent of fear. And this is the ending of the poem that he's referring to. He writes, So live, that when thy summons comes to join the innumerable caravan, which moves to that mysterious realm, where each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death, thou go not like the quarry slave at night scours to his dungeon, but sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust. Approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Father, thank you for being a good God. And thank you for being a loving God. Thank you for being a just God. Father, help us to put our faith in you and not in our present circumstances. Father, we ask you to comfort those who are suffering to the people of Ukraine. And Father, we ask those, uh, you comfort those who are suffering here today with us. Many suffer in silence. We have no clue what they're going through, Father, but we know that you do. Father, be with them and comfort them. Father, thank you for this year of discipleship with our church and for helping us to grow not only in our knowledge of you, but in our love for you. Father, we thank you for this church, and we know that you're here with us. And thank you for Pastor Andrew and for leading us well, and we ask that you wrap your arms around him. Father, thank you for everything you have given us, and we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.